What's going on, friends and fans? This is Jacob here for another great episode of Cineskeptics. Once again, my name is Jacob. I'm Mark, aka Mank. I'm Mark Tan, aka Not Mank. We got special guest Rascliff Kennedy. What it do? Hello, everybody. I know these guys were good friends, great friends. I hope you guys enjoy me um, joining today. I will until you uh, put a new battery in your smoke detector. But um, moving on, let's just dive right into it. We're going to be discussing the horror movies that were released in the year of our Lord 2022, starting off with Scream or Five Cream. Five Cream, start us off. I got to say, well, I'd like to emphasize first and foremost, I think the first Scream is a masterpiece. It is one of the best slashers of all time. And just like the sequels, like two and three and four, Five Cream. Scream 5 sucked ass. I hated it. All right, just to roll back one second. I also did not like 5 Cream, but did you just say that Scream 2 and through 4 suck? I would strongly push back against that. I would partially push back against that, mainly because Scream 4 is a good movie, actually, and then Scream 2 is also pretty good. But I think I'm with you, Jacob, with the Scream 3 part, because that was one where... I just didn't really care for at all, except for any scene with Parker Posey, but that's beside the fact. With Scream 5, aka 5 Cream, it's not Scream 3. That, that's the nice thing I can say about it. I don't know, man. I think 5 Cream is the only Scream sequel that I actually think is bad. 3, yes, is not great, but I still think it is far more entertaining than the newest Scream because, and I haven't watched it since it first came out, but I just remember it being far more self-serious and just kind of falling for a lot of the traps that it itself was poking fun at and criticizing with regard to like the overall evolution of horror in the past few years with what do they call it the requel which is the sequel reboot or whatever i just i I just found it pretty grating to be honest with you which is not something i've necessarily experienced in any of the prior uh scream movies you know what, Jacob? I gotta disagree with you, bro, about the original sequels being ass. Number one, Scream 4 has Hayden Panettiere, bro. That movie can do no wrong. Scream 3, I agree with Mank. It's meh. Scream 2 is a lot of fun. Scream, of course, is a masterpiece. Scream 5, the requel. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I was somewhere in between. I think in the spoiler review, I gave it like a 7. And that was mainly because I actually enjoyed, like, the side characters. I didn't really enjoy the actual villains. The side characters, you know, Randy's niece and nephew, shit like that. Like, there were bits and pieces about it that I liked a lot. What I didn't like is, obviously, it was the girl that fucking killed Dewey. Yeah, what the fuck was that, man? Shit like that, bro. Like, good idea, bad pass. Like, the idea was great. The execution was just fucking terrible. The weirdest thing about Five Cream, for a lot of it, I wasn't reminded of other requels or even other elevated horror movies, which is a topic that the movie tries to go over, but it doesn't really commit to all that well. The weirdest thing about Scream 5 is that the things that I was thinking of the most, it wasn't other horror movies. It was the Star Wars saga because... Like, you mentioned Dewey's death. You know what that reminded me of? Han Solo's death in Force Awakens. (laughs) And even the motivation of our villains, it's almost a direct copy of 
a lot of the people who didn't like The Last Jedi and wanted to basically like course correct because they were mad that the eighth movie in a franchise went in a completely different direction, which is also what happened with Star Wars. So it's just a weird thing where it's like, I thought this was all about horror movies. Why am I thinking about Star Wars all the time with this one? I think a key part of this that none of us have brought up yet is the fact that, you know, sadly, Wes Craven no longer with us. So he did not direct this. Kevin Williamson, who was the writer on, I believe, all four prior movies, not involved either. I forget the directing duo. They're a, they're a duo, right? Who did the, yeah. who did the, the latest one. What was the last movie they did? Ready or Not. Right. Yeah, Ready or Not was fucking great. That's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I really felt like it continued to kind of, I think, commit the same quote-unquote sins that it was trying to really poke fun at. I mean, even down to bringing Sydney back in such an insignificant role was very much something that you could have seen them commenting on as if, you know, in the requel, you're going to bring back a beloved character for the fan service and... You know, I'm pretty sure she's not in the next one. I remember hearing there was some like behind the scenes drama or disputes in terms of like her character and her influence in the in the role in the new one. But like, you know, I don't blame her for not coming back because what's the point in shoehorning in a quote unquote legacy character if you're not going to really do anything with it? You know, and when they do do something with one of those characters like Dewey, it's more of a for a shock factor and not really in any meaningful way. So kind of like Luke Skywalker. In the new Star Wars trilogy. Holy shit, Mark, you're on to something. I feel like it's even worse with this one, because at least with stuff like The Last Jedi, like Luke Skywalker was a fairly major character. In this movie, Sydney is almost a tertiary character. She basically doesn't matter. And it's not even like the villains are trying to get back directly at her. They just want to just do it again with just with another group of people with some of them just happening, they just happen to be the descendants of the killer from the first movie. Yeah. I think the weirdest part is it was like, they decided to do it for just like the biggest, like dweebish reasons. It was just like, (laughs) hey man, we like these guys. Freaking, we like the guy who played Shaggy. We're gonna fucking mimic his shit. It's like, bro, what what the fuck is that? Like, come on. Like, give us some meat on this here, you know? Not, Not this goofy ass incel nonsense doo supreme <laughs> and mark to you know bring it back to the star wars thing like they essentially remade the ending of the first scream but thought they could get away with it because they were directly poking fun and calling out at it which i don't think kind of forgives the execution of it being so lackluster and jacob to your point fairly goofy which is kind of crazy to say considering how goofy the entire franchise is yeah, like, the entire franchise is kind of like a horror comedy in a way. So for them to kind of fumble that whole idea and concept in such a goofy-ass way, is it's an insult to the fans. It's an insult to the legacy of Wes Craven. Because that was kind of like, after Nightmare on Elm Street, that was kind of like his brainchild in a way. So I, they kind of, like, shitted on his legacy, which is weird. And while we're talking about Star Wars... And we're talking about the newer trilogy and all that other shit. Shout out to Ryan Johnson, because without you, bro, we don't exist. Shout out Ryan Johnson. Brick's a damn good movie. They almost name drop him, but they don't. They just basically refer to him as the director of Knives Out. It still gets the point across that, yes, we are trying to remind the audience of the Star Wars trilogy, even though 
this was all about requels and very briefly elevated horror movies. And even the elevated horror stuff, the only time that where that really comes into play is just name dropping like A24 movies like Hereditary or other stuff like The Babadook. It's not like the movie's really grappling like what that means when you want to be an elevated horror movie. It just feels like another slasher who done it, like the other four movies. Right. What is so funny about that is again falling into the same traps that it's trying to expose. Like it is such a product of the current kind of media entertainment landscape where everything is so self-referential and shout out to my girl audrey a xerox of a xerox of a xerox like it is so consumed and concerned with the easter egg and like oh i understand that reference i know what he's talking about when they say jordan peele or like you said you know the director of knives out and honestly i almost wish that they tried that like obviously not hire ryan johnson but i mean honestly it could be pretty fucking sweet just try to do something completely different than what has come before and that may be more polarizing and subversive but what would a and i know james would probably gouge my eyes out because i know he's kind of wishy-washy on the whole uh, elevated horror movement and and subgenre but like what would that look like in the screen world at least it would be different and it wouldn't be copying things that came before just for the sake of kind of being a little more edgy like imagine i mean we're probably going to mention this movie in detail later but i feel like a good example of a horror movie that leans between elevated horror and more like crowd-pleasing scares is Smile. That one, it feels like every time they do a jump scare, it's it's actually like for real. Like they're not half-assing it. But then when they're actually talking about stuff like trauma, it is treated genuinely seriously. I feel like if Scream really were to be made more smartly, it would look more like that movie. Right. I think we should use that as a segue to move on to Smile, but any last thoughts from jacob or rascal i think that five cream would have been a lot better if they would have been straightforward with instead of the two killers instead because like we've how many times have we seen the duo killers in a screen movie scream 3 is the only one that isn't dual killers all the other ones have had multiple and it's it's multiple killers it's always extra shit i think this would have been a lot better if it would have been just very straightforward one slasher and not the goofy ass motivations your mom fucked my dad mom left me whenever i was a kid and all this other shit if it would have just been a very straightforward i fucking hate these people i'm gonna use this ghost face killer that's been haunting our town for years and that's what i'm gonna do it would have been a lot better it would have been more bearable it tries to be way too cute like even it's it's far more aware of itself than it is able to execute that in the same way that you know Wes Craven and everyone else who worked on those movies before were able to. All right, we want to talk smile. Do it, Jacob. I feel like you were hot on this one, so go for it. So I watched an early screener for it, and the theater I was in, it was a packed house, and like everyone was hooting and hollering at all like the big scenes. Like I remember. The one jump scare in the movie. I'm assuming everyone's seen it, right? I have not, but you are free to spoil my guy because I'm going to watch it regardless. The trailers have also kind of spoiled more of the movie than it should have. There were there were a lot of key jump scare 
and like memorable moments that were spoiled in the trailer. The one I'm immediately thinking of is when she's kind of having a hallucination of her sister coming out of the car and her neck bends all the way around. That fucked me up seeing that trailer in in theaters, but also it was still so effective in the actual movie. The one jump scare that made everyone in the theater like jump and yell was uh, the one when Sozie Bacon's character, I can't remember the character's name. The characters weren't very memorable, I, I will say. You don't go to those movies being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm here for the performances. I'm here for the actors because the acting job was, was doo doo. But the scene where she's like trying to like listen in on the audio during the very beginning of the movie. And I forget what was being said. It was like saying Rose. Oh, Rose was her name. It was Rose. And it was saying Rose. Yeah, <laughs> Rose. Right. And it's like zooming in so close on the laptop screen on just like this very specific part of the audio clip. And then it like cut so sharp to this ghoulish ass woman. I mean, I was in the theater like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, that was also it was very um, now that I'm thinking about it, it was like very much a the conversation kind of moment, but like a very scary version, obviously, with a jump scare on top of it. But the moment for me, I think a lot of the jump scares after that one were effective. I wouldn't say that they were amazing but i think where smile really succeeded was in the way it built tension and dread throughout especially that scene when she thinks that the alarm in her house is going off and the home security company calls her and it starts to segue from it being totally fine to a more like malevolent thing and the one on the phone asks her you know are you sure you're alone and tells her to turn around and like i'm getting chills thinking about it now it was i think that stuff was so good in that movie yeah that was like a great pt moment there shout out hideo kojima that moment i was like oh damn this is some fucking spooky ass shit and there was an, another movie that came out this year where i had the same thought because all the other movies that came out this year it kind of gave you some time to breathe where smile it was like put your damn face in the mud and then giving you like a second to breathe anytime the actor that plays A-Train or the cop ex-boyfriend came on screen. Anytime they were on screen, it was like, oh yeah, this sucks. I still can't believe they put A-Train in that fucking movie. That That's really why I'm just going to wait on it to be on Paramount Plus because fuck. Like, why is he in a horror movie? Why is he in anything other than The Boys? <laughs> he basically plays himself, honestly. Like a slightly scaled back version who just becomes A-Train halfway through the movie with the way he treats his fiance. Shout out A-Train. Shout out A-Train. Wait, who is that? I heard a voice. It's A-Train. The ghost of A-Train. <laughs> no, no, it's not the ghost of A-Train. It's James Preston Poole. Hey, fellas. Sorry I'm late. Yee. We talking smile? Talking smile. Talking A-Train, more like. <laughs> well, until we start the A-Train podcast, I can hop in here and give a couple thoughts on smile. It sounds like the temperature on this one is that y'all are mostly liking it. I'm with y'all. I, I don't really usually care for those about trauma kind of horror movies, but there's something about this one that just kind of chilled me to my bone. I feel like even from the very opening scene with that one girl, it's like you can already see like that whole thing is pretty tense. And then even when it gets to the credits, I've never seen a movie where I got so much dread just from seeing the studio's name like presents, like Paramount Presents. 
because that was the one where you got time to breathe, but then you were breathing because you're basically trying to like come away from the shell shock of the big death scene that happens. Yeah, I I'm I'm kind of conflicted on the ending because one I didn't see an ending any other way that it would that would have really been satisfying. I'm I'm kind of a sucker for I don't know if the, if you if we would call it or I would call it mean spirited, but I kind of love a really bleak horror ending. But I think it kind of creates an interesting conversation or paradox in the way that not to totally spoil anything here. I know we kind of have talked about some scares, but the way a certain character's fate ends up juxtaposed with all the talk about trauma and overcoming it and facing it, it kind of left me with somewhat of a, again, a really bleak note like, okay, this is all there is at the end of a really traumatic life. I don't think it's saying that that necessarily. And I think the movie is not actually, despite all its talk about trauma, is actually super concerned with like saying something meaningful about it so much it is trying to use that as a channel to really create a lot of tension and dread and fear. I don't know if anybody else felt the same way or if maybe I'm just kind of going a bit too, a bit too deep into something that maybe not be that, that deep. I kind of feel very strongly that the movie was effective in that department. Because you see so many of these elevated horror movies, so to speak, that talk about things like mental health or whatnot, but give this easy catharsis at the end. And it kind of, of course, without spoiling anything, it made it made the movie stick with me much more to kind of be like, yeah, mental illness is a bitch. Shout out mental illness. Yeah, for real. Sometimes these demons can't be fought with a simple third act. I forgive you, or I'm going to use this tool to get through this kind of thing. And that, that that's what makes Smile so special and what makes it so scary, because that shit has stuck with me for very long after I've seen it. Just to be clear, like I do appreciate how far it goes, and I don't think I would have been satisfied with the happier ending. And you know, on the other hand of what I was saying, I do think that it is saying, you know, James, to your point that, like, this is not something that you know, you're someone who has dealt with and experienced really tragic, life-changing trauma. It is not as simple as one day to say, okay, I'm going to face it. It is a journey, you know, that will take just as long as it took to really twist and affect your life as it will for you to kind of come out of that. I like the fact that we can kind of debate and talk about it and wonder what is the right way or not to approach something like that. But, again, the fact that, to your point, it actually wants to to go there a bit more whereas a lot of other media a lot of superhero stuff lately too is so concerned with talking about trauma 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 and it's only just kind of like this surface level thing that doesn't really add anything to the overall arc of a character mm-hmm. i was gonna also add here that like the true ending to like the the kind of the book end to like the whole message regarding trauma is that immediate aftermath once like that kind of like it starts to kind of move into motion right and then she makes it back to the apartment and everything, you know, and then maybe like just that everything after that could correspond to just kind of like how everything had kind of progressed earlier because everything that kind of preceded the movie um, preceded that like the end scene, you know, it, I don't really feel like it would make much sense to kind of end off on like everything is okay. It had to end like, damn, you've got fucked up. Um, and Rascal, close your ears for a minute. I got one little comment to make. Like I said, man, if you got to spoil it, spoil it. I'm going to watch it regardless. Tall woman. What the fuck was that, dude? 
That shit was crazy. It's funny. I was just that day. I was joking with someone about the tall girl movies on Netflix. So I feel like that was funny, but that was highly disturbing. It felt like you were playing some really twisted, like Silent Hill horror game. Shout out Silent Hill. I don't know if there's anything else that we wanted to say about Smile because I wanted to pivot to something that's a little bit more goofier, which would be bodies, bodies, bodies. Anyone have any last comments on, on Smile? So did y'all talk about the cat kill? No. Oh my god. So that specific moment, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what it is. Listeners at home, cover your ears if you don't know about this. Um, there's a scene in the movie where the protagonist is going to her nephew's birthday party, and her cat has gone missing, and she hands the nephew the present, and inside is the dead body of her cat, and nobody believes her that she didn't put it there. And that scene just put me in the worst headspace because it is horrible to imagine being in that situation where you just can't explain what happened, right? That's the kind of horror that really makes me shake a little bit. You could have just said the dog did it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that part too, and this is where the, the movie is really good at exploring mental illness and the effects of trauma on people in the way that it really kind of highlights if you don't have a good support system around you, like the way that her, people in her life were gaslighting her and they, she was crazy and not believing her. And also the movie is like low-key a ACAB movie. I don't know if that's controversial, but like the cops in that movie, as they are in almost all of cinema history, are just bumbling assholes and idiots. And I, I just love that too. Also set in New Jersey. Not much actually looks like New Jersey, but shout out to my home. I'm going to go ahead and pass the reins to JPP here. What is What did you think of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? So I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies at the South by Southwest premiere before any marketing or anything came out. I think the marketing pretty badly misrepresented what the movie is. That's one of those movies that's really fun to see with a big audience. I think it's a really sharp satire that plays with some fun horror-y stuff, but kind of works a lot better as a really silly comedy. And I think its social commentary is really good. Rachel Sinat, Jeff's Kiss, amazing. I liked it. That's about all I got to say about this one. I watched it from the A24 screener room thing that they did. Shout out A24. I didn't hate it. I had fun. You know, I'm going to be like probably the only person that has this opinion, but I do like Pete Davidson. No, me too. Okay, well, perfect. Um, But I like Pete Davidson, and so, you know, even though he was in it for a hot minute, time that he was in it, it was, was pretty good. Rachel Sonat, she rules. I mean, after that, I didn't really care. Maria Bakalova, she was just kind of hanging out. I mean, well, not just her. The rest of them were kind of just hanging out. But I mean, you know, they I think it was fine. <sighs> I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, not gonna lie, had a lot of fun, saw it by myself, movie theater was like half empty, I don't want to spoil anything, but what I will go on to say is yes, Rachel Sinat, fire, also, Mahaya La Herald, she was fire as well, happy to see her getting more roles, she just got cast in uh, Dumb Money, the movie about the uh, GameStop stock stuff. Man, I am not excited for that. I am only because she's in it. 
up until I saw that she was in it, I didn't care for it. Now I'm there day one. If you haven't seen Industry, I highly, highly recommend you watch season one and two. If you can binge it, binge it. Shit goes crazy. But in Bodies, 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 she was, her character was fun. The social commentary was really, like, I like those Gen X movies with all the lingo that we never used until social media became a thing. People never talk like that out in public. People still don't. Most of the terms are literally only on social media, and they're only whenever you're having a conversation about homosexuality versus heterosexuality never gets talked about out in public. So to see those type of discussions and that type of language being used in movies, sometimes it can be annoying. Sometimes it can be very cool. Bodies, 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 it was great. Do revenge, it was annoying. So I guess it just depends on the setting in the movie, the type of message or the type of conversation they're trying to have. I do agree with James. The marketing threw the movie off because you're expecting one thing and you get a completely other thing. What I would compare it to is Clue, honestly, because it was a really big whodunit, regardless of who did it, even though we all know who did it and how it happened. It was a really good horror movie version of Clue for me. Anyways, I think anyone's going to top that. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, rascal. Y'all, if there's one horror movie, if we saw none of these and I was to recommend one horror movie to watch, it would be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hell no. Yeah, I'm leaving I'm leaving the podcast again. <laughs> See you, Jacob. <laughs> I'm just playing. You open that shit up so wide, man. God damn it. Okay, it's Barbarian. For those who don't know, it's a new horror film about someone who goes to an Airbnb and there's someone else there. It's directed by Zach Krager of Whitest Kids You Know fame. And that's all you need to know about it. We're not going to spoil it. We're just going to give our reactions. This has been probably my favorite horror movie of the year. Smile is probably the scariest of this year's quote-unquote mainstream horror releases. But if anyone has not seen it, try to. But also try to avoid any spoilers or reading really what the movie is about or where it goes because that is so much of the enjoyment of unraveling where the story is going but also not only the narrative twists and turns that happen but the tonal shifts i think it very much starts out as one thing and then over the course of three acts i guess you would say it veers into different character perspectives different tones i think it is in a way comparing it to smile again which is very overt and direct about its themes of trauma i think barbarian touches on a lot of very interesting societal ideas and critiques even just starting out with something as simple as like the quote-unquote nice guy trope with bill skarsgård's character or later on with Justin Long and this really egregiously obnoxious, privileged white man trying to make the most out of any land he can, despite some pretty bad circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, without spoiling too much, I would just highly recommend Barbarian, given how surprising and how fresh it was. I think we talked about this in the last pod, that it was kind of compared early on to Malignant. I don't think that's a one-to-one comparison, but again, in terms of 
it's you know self-awareness and how smart it is in the camp that's really involved in it i was i was really excited by it shut up malignant shut up maligma fuck that movie <laughs> Bill's favorite movie <laughs> i'll piss on that movie so barbarian is definitely similar to malignant in terms of some of the crazy places it goes i think barbarian is really just a masterclass in not only misdirection but also um, horror screenwriting in general and non-linear storytelling it's so hard to discuss this movie without going into specifics but i'll say this i saw barbarian four times in theaters the first time was just for myself every time after that I wasn't watching the movie, I was watching the audience. Go see this movie in a packed theater if you can and watch the way the audience reacts. It plays them like a fiddle and it maximizes every single moment of horror that they can. As well as a lot of really great dark comedy. I really could go on and on and on about this movie, but I don't want any second of it to be spoiled. Uh, with Barbarian for me, it was like, I loved it. I thought it was great. I will say, like, the moment that the twist does get introduced, I was yelling in the theater. I was in a theater with, like, six other people. I'm in the part of Yeehaw, Texas, so everyone that was there was, like, cowboy hat, cowboy boots. Everyone looked a little racist, kind of sitting in the theater, old as hell. And they didn't say a word, and I'm just sitting here hooting and hollering. I'm pretty sure they were trying to enjoy their pictures, you know what I mean? It's a super fun movie. I mean, even if I think what to James's point, the script is impeccable, but I think even on its own, if you have not been totally lost by that first perspective and kind of story change, then I really think you can get on with the rest of the movie because despite how actually terrifying it can be and the tension it creates, it is so much more of a really enjoyable, smartly written script. And I think that just shines through the entire thing. I believe Barbarian is dropping on HBO Max soon. Rascal, you need to come over and watch it, and we're going to have a great time. It's going to be on HBO Max and Hulu on Monday. Or it might be the 22nd, to be honest. I saw a thing. It was international, and it had Disney+. And I know anytime something is international, it's on Disney+, Plus. it's on Hulu here. And nine times out of ten, because it's a Fox movie, isn't it? Yes, it is. For whatever reason, Mank, you know more about this than I do. They have a uh, a contract with HBO where it goes there for streaming. Yeah, and that's just like the way that just speaks to how messy windowing and licensing is. But like they did this thing, and you can read about this if you're interested, how prior to HBO Max, Fox had loaned out basically all of their movies to HBO for the streaming release. And then once Disney came in, they obviously want to be able to hold that for their own platforms on Hulu, Disney, whatever. That's why you might have seen like New Mutants on HBO instead of Hulu or Disney+. Plus. But uh, I believe it's coming on HBO Max next week, uh, the 25th. And the newer stuff, I guess the stuff that com- that's coming out this year, because it was like Death on the Nile, shit like that. It goes to Hulu as well. I don't know if it's the same day or like a little bit after, but... It goes to Hulu too. It's it's so that licensing shit is so weird, man. It's about to get even weirder because I don't know if y'all heard about this, but Disney has no plans to release this movie on Blu-ray whatsoever. I don't even know if there's any kind of physical release in any format. 
For Barbarian? Yeah, for Barbarian. And Barbarian made a shit ton of money, too. It made ten times its budget. That's crazy that they're not going to give it a physical release. Bob Chippick, bro, <laughs> we got to do something about this guy. It's all just spite towards Fox, man. I don't get it. Like, whatever movies are under that 20th Century Studios banner, they just dump. But the moral of the story is, if you haven't seen Barbarian yet, watch it on streaming and then demand a physical release. Or don't demand. I'm not, I'm not going to make our audience go full, uh, you know, fan base of a certain director, but... <laughs> that we love. That we love. Zack Snyder. Oh hey, man, I, I appreciate that. Because fuck those people, but yeah, we, we do like Snyder, but fuck those people. I don't like Snyder. You like Justice League. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this next time. But yeah, be a, we're pro-Snyder, anti-Snyder cultists. But anyways, just watch the movie on HBO. Get those streaming numbers up, and that's going to be what makes them pay attention. Are we talking about Maligma or X? Oh, holy shit, we haven't talked about X. We'll get to X, but you said Maligma... That reminds me, we need a Rascal Malignant rant. Fuck that movie. Fuck Gabriel, little piece of shit. Like, I'm not gonna lie, that movie fucking drove me up a wall because the mom gave birth to Gabriel and a girl, and she saw that and gave her up for adoption. That was a part that I didn't understand. I don't know, bro. There was a lot wrong with that movie. The kills were fucking amazing. I'm, ne- I'm not gonna take that away from the movie. The way Gabriel came about, the introduction of the plot twist, there was just a lot of shit that wasn't very James Wan. No, I feel I feel that it's definitely nowhere near as scary as any of his other stuff. And for the audience at home, I just want to make it clear, Rascal is down with crazy horror movies. Him and I talk about this shit all the time. So don't come on this podcast and be like, you didn't get it. No, he got it. He just didn't yeah, nah, like man. it. Again, I like the idea of malignant. I don't enjoy the way that certain shit is done. I mean, there's just some shit, like we talked about Scream. Like, there are ideas out there, but sometimes the execution is just fucking bad. And this was one of those movies where the execution was terrible. I might not know how to execute it better than they did. Somebody out there knows how to execute it better. Sometimes things just don't feel right when you're watching them if you just don't fuck with it like on principle on the tone on the feel i think that's more than a valid reason to not like something and i'm not gonna shit on y'all for liking it i just don't like it and you know me if i if i feel like i gotta slander somebody for liking some shit i will but i definitely understand (laughs) why people like malignant like i i don't there's a very valid reason for liking that movie i just personally I can't get jiggy with that shit. Do y'all want to do just a quick little bit on Texas Chainsaw Massacre from earlier this year? Because I feel like we got to talk about this. That was so bad. That was the cinematic equivalent to a goddamn car pileup while you're trying to get to work at 8.30 in the morning and you got work at 8.35. Man, I love watching those, though. I'm not going to lie, I didn't hate it. Talked about it last time, I didn't hate it. I mean, I didn't finish it. I got like 30 minutes into it. And I said, fuck this movie. Like, y'all have at it. Like, I got it. Gentrification. Whatever. Fuck that movie. I'd like to make a quick disclaimer, though, before we get into the hot and heavy. Elsie Fisher is innocent. Everything else is fair game. True. Man, I don't even have, like, much of a rant to do for this movie because it kind of, like, speaks for itself. I'll say this. 
I've liked every single Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, even the absolute trash ones, for one way or another, just because they all have that kind of grungy, hillbilly horror vibe to it. Like, that's my shit. I love that. This one had none of that, and it wasn't entertaining on its own right. Its commentary was bullshit, in my opinion, because it wasn't coming from anywhere genuine. At the end, they just decide to have Leatherface go on this, like, massive killing spree. Like, at one point, I think he, like, chops up, like, 30 people in a party bus, which was fun to watch, but, you know, it misses the whole point. The whole point is that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was about the kind of shit that could happen if you got stranded in one of those fucked up little Texas towns where there's nowhere to go. And I wasn't scared with this. I didn't find it funny. I found it insanely disrespectful to the whole independent spirit of the original movie. And I don't think it added anything. All it did was kill the possibility of us getting a Texas Chainsaw movie for a long time. And that sucks. I was going to quickly make a comment about how it's kind of ironic how um, a movie with a message about gentrification was released by Netflix who essentially kind of gentrified the cinematic landscape from being a very open environment, I would say, to being like you have to like pay for entry with like the subscription services. I mean, hell, when I was a kid, I used to be sneaking in the theaters all the time, watch multiple movies in a day, but I can't do that anymore because everything's on a streamer anyways. Facts. You're not lying. You're really not lying. Holy shit. Jacob. You just said some really, really fuck like, bro. No, think about what he just said though. Netflix gentrified the Texas Chainsaw franchise. Well, and gentrified the like whole landscape. Bro, they, they like whenever you really think about it in terms of gentrification, streaming services literally gentrified everything that we've known as cinema. Sure, you get a ton of shit. Like we have access to a ton of shit at one time. I get the benefits, just like there are benefits to gentrification. But for the most part, you push out independent directors, independent writers, independent studios. Like these things are almost non existent. I think the other problem is just that back when streaming wasn't really a thing, where the hierarchy of cinema was basically movies released in theaters and then movies released straight to video. Now, when you have all these streaming platforms, there's not much of a difference between like the big budget movies and like the like the cheaper like low quality one. It's really just up to you now to just figure out like oh is this a movie I should be watching? And sometimes like you don't even get to decide because Netflix will just do all that stuff for you because of all the algorithms. So, yeah, this is clearly an issue outside of horror specifically, but it, since horror is in the umbrella of cinema, it's affected hugely too. I think it says a lot about just how bleakly bad this movie is that we immediately just after I started talking we immediately jumped into Netflix's gentrifying cinema. It is like so much of Netflix's output it feels so built in a lab and like built on hitting key algorithmic buzzwords and things that people will respond to either like aggressively or feel like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this is talking to me about the social commentary and then the gentrification themes, which I totally agree with everyone here. Like it is bullshit. You know, it is, it is such bare bones effort in terms of what it's trying to say. And even 
very weird, really kind of distasteful integration of school shooter backstory with Elsie Fisher's character and like going through that trauma. And that's why she doesn't like using guns. I just don't necessarily know how that fits in with that particular movie, but also like the lineage of Texas Chainsaw movies, which, as I said in the last pod, I'm not the most avid follower of. But at the same time, it felt very out of place. I think for me, the only reason why I didn't hate it was that my expectations were so unfathomably low that when I watched it, especially got to the end, the I think the end is the only real redeeming factor because going back to what we were talking about in the beginning about kind of mean-spirited endings, it really, it really leaves you with this super upsetting shock factor of, holy fuck, like they actually did something cool and interesting, but unfortunately it was the absolute last shot. Of course, it kind of obviously harkens back to the original ending and, you know, Sally driving away in the truck with Leatherface, you know, in the background. It's a it's a much less impressive or iconic version of that. But I thought with the self-driving Tesla car, it was kind of a that was the best version of it, what it could have been. Everything else was so sloppy and hand fisted. Out to hand fisting movies. Dude, you need to calm down. Cineskeptics <laughs> are going to break up live on the pod in front of Rascal. <laughs> it's all my fault. All right, moving on. The Black Phone. <laughs> Y'all seen this one? Y'all like it? Yes. I'm the only one that hasn't seen it, I think. Mink, what'd you like about it? I really enjoyed the... I mean, obviously, doing the Stephen King analogy is pretty basic and easy considering, you know, that his son was involved in the film based on... It was a short story or a book? It was a short story. Yeah. So it definitely had that it factor with the young kids, and I thought it was also... Um, Ethan Hawke is such a... Probably, you know, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, actors, celebrities, personality, just such an interesting, you know, talent. And I thought what he brought to Black Phone was very interesting and, and kind of not like what you would have seen with other prior, quote unquote, serial killer characters. And I really loved the supernatural elements of it. I thought the kids were fantastic. Yeah, it was just a very, very unique horror movie that came out this year. I don't think I was particularly scared by it there was one scene with one of the dead kids floating in the corner that sent chills down my spine not to say that it was not a, a successfully scary film wasn't scariest for me but yeah those are my kind of top thoughts on that scott derrickson has such a way with making these very textured lived in um, horror movies which i think it's almost strange to me that he hasn't adapted a Stephen King novel yet because he's so well-equipped to do it. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, it didn't majorly scare me in the moment, but it just it just lingers with you because it knows exactly how much to show and how much not to show. Like, its opening scene involves a um, kid, you know, winning a baseball game, and then he's walking home... And then suddenly this van just pulls up and it fades to black. That's all you need. And it's about ten times more chilling if we had saw the kidnapping. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm rambling. Here's the real reason I really like the movie, right? Rascal and I are from Houston. One of the stories I grew up hearing about was about this serial killer in this area named The Heights in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. 
His name was Dean Coral. He worked at a candy shop and he would kidnap and murder children. And whenever he did this, the parents would just assume the kids went missing because that happened all the time in the Heights. That story stuck with me for so long. And this movie, despite being set in Colorado, it had that just chilling, real vibe to it. And I really appreciated seeing this real life folklore, you know, and of course embellished with uh, supernatural elements, but this, this real life folklore, or at least drawn from, you know, real life figures like Dean Coral and other serial killers be brought to life. And I think that realism kind of made it effective for me. I have not watched it yet. It's on Peacock. It's on my to-do list. I'm definitely going to watch it. But from what James just said, and then from watching the preview, I definitely do get Candyman vibes because Candyman was a very, very real, like Candyman's a very real story in Houston. Like it's a very telltale that parents do tell their kids about here because it's basically our boogeyman. If you grew up in the town Jeffrey Dahmer was from, and your parents tell you this story about Jeffrey Dahmer as if he's the boogeyman. So the Candyman is our boogeyman because that's our story. That's our, you know, our horror story. That's our don't talk to strangers. That's a, it's a very real thing in Houston. So I, I definitely do get those vibes from Black Phone. And maybe that'll help me look at the movie very differently. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I think even the tagline for this movie is basically "Don't talk to strangers," right? There's some variation of that. Yeah, something, something like that. Um, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, so I didn't get to see this in theaters. I only got to see it when it premiered on Peacock. I actually quite like this movie for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, James. This feels very lived in, like just from the production design, just from the costumes, just seeing the 70s period, not treated like it was a movie made in the 70s. It was almost like we're seeing it as it's happening now. Like it's pretty refreshing compared to some movies where it's very much about trying to emulate the 70s aesthetic stuff like X. I do like Ethan Hawke as the grabber, I think. He's scary when you don't really see it coming because like he he appears as this very affable person before he kidnaps you. And then even while you're being kidnapped, he basically treats you fairly well. And he's not ruthless when it comes to like preventing people from escaping. In fact, that's part of what makes it scary on his part because he does let people escape because he basically wants to give his people that he captured a sense of satisfaction but then he's gonna rob it as soon as like he realizes what's happened and he's gonna capture you for some other thing which it's basically hinted that it's sexual abuse which of course that makes it even more unsettling but i think the stuff that really stood out to me it wasn't even the stuff with the grabber it was actually like all the other abusive characters mainly the main kid's father where early in the movie like you see him basically reprimand the sister for just going out and like that scene just to see how fuming he was and just how casually he did it it just just seeing that like it was just so terrifying to me like because that's clearly the kind of stuff that could actually happen yes obviously there are cases where people have been kidnapped by other people but this seems even more nonchalant than that and i think it's that type of focus that the movie does that's where the movie becomes special to me I agree with you guys where I don't think it's necessarily a super like scary movie. Like I, I don't think the jump scares in this are really that strong. It really is just more about the unsettling factor that goes into the characters. 
But certainly when I look at the other movies of horror that came out this year, this is probably one of the best structured ones that I can think of. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Mark. Just like Rascal hit the nail on the head with Vice Vice Bodies earlier, you hit the nail on the head with this one. I do know that you just brought up X, though, and I think we can come to our sort of grand finale. We're going to let Rascal talk a little bit about Halloween Ends afterwards, but we need to talk about the most surprising franchise of the year, which is the X and Pearl saga. And then we got Maxine coming up next year, right? Oh, yeah. Guys, I fucking loved X. I saw it. I was practically vibrating. If Barbarian is a masterwork of screenwriting in horror, this movie is a masterwork of direction. It manages to be fun, funny, terrifying, and deeply, brutally sad all the same. And it just takes its time, slowly ramps up, and by the time shit ends, it has you wrapped around its finger. This movie, to me, with its deep hillbilly horror vibe, this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie I wanted. I was a huge fan of X. I mean, like you said, I think it was like, you know, I was coming in to this year kind of hankering for a good Texas Chainsaw movie. And we didn't get that. But then with X, it was kind of, I guess, like the Texas Chainsaw adjacent movie we did eventually get. And we got Kid Cudi in it. It was great. I'm not going to try to pretend like there isn't an elephant in the room in that. Mia Goth is like powerhouse. X is my number five favorite movie of the year. It is my favorite horror movie of the year. I thought it rocked. I thought it was super good. And I, I am ready for Maxine. Yeah, I have been decided if it's one of my absolute favorite movies of the year but i know for certain that this is my number one horror movie of the year i mentioned x in conjunction with the black phone where i said like the black phone is really good for it looking of its time but whereas x looks very much like almost like you're watching like a period piece like a, a more like low budget version of that and i didn't mean that in a negative way i think like one of its best features of x is that it really does feel like gritty and dark and even in the scenes where it's more lighthearted, i never felt like it was anything but super genuine all the cast in it is just so if they're not charming they're just spellbinding like like the people that I would say would be charming were people like like Brittany Snow and Kid Cudi, and they have the whole bit together where like Cudi realizes that like every time like they film the sex scenes, it's like Brittany Snow's character just, it really is just doing it for the camera. She's not actually like getting pleasure from him. But then you have scenes that are both scary and sad, like one of the scenes later in the movie where Max is basically hiding under the bed where Pearl is and she's trying to find a way to get out. You have Max just trying to leave the room, but then it's also, we're also just seeing Pearl and her husband having sex, which in itself like is already like a deeply like a sad thing. Cause it's like, like one of the big lines in that scene is Pearl saying like, make me feel young again with that one little line. It's like, you see her like be a human rather than, just being like this murderous psychopath like there is like an actual person underneath her and i think that's what makes it even more tragic and i think like all that stuff combined together like it's i can't really think of anything that i dislike in it 
I, I think all the stuff before Pearl really shows up, I think it's merely good, but certainly when Pearl like takes center stage, that's when the movie just hits the ground running. Hearing you talk about it this way really reminds me of what I loved so much about it, which is that it takes a genre like slasher and gives it the care of like a big prestige genre. And for so long, the quote unquote elevated horror has all have only basically been in horror movies where it's like a psychological thriller or such. And it was really nice to see the level of TLC they gave a slasher by just getting a bunch of really great character actors together and directing around all their strengths and adding layers and layers of thematic tissue. It was great. The single thing for me, at least, that can really tear down even the best-intentioned horror movie is the characters. Going kind of back to the beginning of the podcast, talking about Scream, or Five Cream, I should say, and a lot of us not liking that because, you know, aside from the execution, but a lot of the characters just not being that interesting or compelling, I think the characters in X combined with the writing makes everything so much more, again, to everyone's point already, like, more sad, more emotional. I never felt like any of the characters necessarily deserved what happened to them. And I think it takes that Texas Chainsaw you know, setup and idea of a, of a horror film and really turns it on its head. You know, first by making the group at the center of it, this adult film crew, but also, you know, the people who are hunting them, this seemingly feeble elderly couple who could not even be considered as threats. And I think the way that it also integrates the history of adult films and sex and horror within itself, because they are often very much two ends of the same extreme spectrum of film, at least in the history of film and what has been you know, seen in theaters for decades. But again, going back to that sadness and emotion, the most surprising and interesting thing is the empathy and compassion that it offers Pearl and her husband and you know the way that it's not necessarily asking you to sympathize with them but it's showing you how Pearl especially could go from being this mirror of Maxine to suffering the same fate that we all will which is aging and her best days being behind her and losing that that X factor, how that could propel someone towards this really vengeful, violent, you know, latter part of their life. I mean, I agree with all of you guys' points that you've made so far about the movie. I personally thought it was fucking great. The build-up to the part where Pearl actually just loses her shit and decides, I'm going to be a fucking axe murderer. Like, the movie itself is fun. Jenna Ortega is fun. Mia Goth is fun. Uh, having Kid Cudi just in that type of environment was fun. And I keep saying the word fun because that movie was very entertaining. I don't think there's a moment in the movie that after you finish it and you add everything together and you kind of just calculate what you saw, there was never really a dull moment. And Mia Goth, man, she really can do no wrong. Whatever else Mia Goth is in, whatever she wants to do, full on support it. That movie was incredible. The point of aging and getting older, like, you know, people lose that edge. They lose that kick. And some people will do literally whatever it takes to get that back. And I think 
that kind of leaned into some of what the movie was about. You know, her just wanting to feel young again, her just wanting that adrenaline rush to do things that she did whenever she was younger. I enjoyed it a lot. I think we can all come to a consensus here that uh, X is the shit. It is my favorite horror this year for sure. Oh, I just wanted to just briefly talk about Rascal. You mentioned how this movie, it's very focused on the idea of getting older, which is also the basis for why I think the landslide needle drop is probably the best scene of any movie this year because like that's one where it's just people just hanging out and just listening to the song and of course given the content of that song it even has the lyrics like you know i'm getting older too it just felt like such a perfect choice and i didn't even realize how perfect it was until like you described it because like landslide obviously it's a classic song but i think just talking about this movie it just made me realize just how much more perfect that scene was that's my favorite scene of any movie this year, without a doubt. Um, it transitions things from being this fun horror movie about porn to being something much different, and I loved it. I think we can move on to Pearl here. I mean, we all kind of agree that X is great, but then we get to Pearl, and I think that's kind of when the tide shift a little bit. A whole lot to say on Pearl. I think it's a great character-focused horror movie. Mia Goth is fantastic. It has as much meta-commentary about cinema as X does, which is a whole other conversation entirely. There's really just not much to it other than that. It's just a great villain movie. I liked it, but it ain't X. I got a, a buddy from high school who I follow on Letterboxd. He wrote this review, and I share the same sentiment, and it's Mia Goth put in too much effort for a movie with very little going on. Because Mia Goth was really great in this, but I was just so withdrawn from everything that was kind of happening in this movie. I will say the last, I'm going to probably say like 30 minutes, where it really is Pearl's dissension, I would say is like the best kind of atmosphere shifts I have felt in a movie. Even like that very end little monologue, I was just sitting there like in chills. I was like, the other person in the room, I was like, you got to get out. You got to fucking dart get out the door right now i think pearl would have been a lot better if the rest of the movie very much like the last 30 minutes of the movie i think that's probably my only real comment on it ty west knows what he's doing great filmmaker but you know x felt like it was on all the time and pearl you could tell was kind of written very quickly and shot on the same sets just because they had extra time and you know it turned out great for that but it's not as intelligent and subversive as X. But it is good. Worth a watch. I don't know if anyone else has anything to say about Pearl. I haven't seen it. That's why I haven't said anything. Same. Mank, I know that you wanted to say a quick word about Hellraiser. Yes. So, finally got around to seeing it. Despite how much I like David Bruckner as a director, I really loved The Night House. And I was really excited for this. I did not like it at all. I thought it was an interesting experiment and a very highly competent direction that I thought was ultimately held back by a pretty lackluster script. I think it's objectively well-made. If you've seen The Night House, you can probably see the way that David Bruckner plays with space in a really interesting way. And I think Hellraiser and that lore, and even just like, if you've only seen the first movie, 
the way that rooms open and move and kind of become these portals to hell or another dimension or wherever, you know, the Cenobites are from. That stuff's interesting, but if it wasn't a Hellraiser movie, I think it probably would have been better. Then again, I'm, I've only really seen the first one. I've seen other ones probably in passing growing up on cable. So I don't have too much of a real connection to it. But what this version of it lacks is all of that psychosexual stuff is totally gone. It's there in terms of like seeing characters fucking each other, but you're not really getting that kind of cross between the pain and the pleasure and like the real kind of griminess of that first movie. You know, I appreciate them not doing a full rehash of the original, but part of what made that first one so good and entertaining was it's pretty naughty, like like a weird word to use, but that's really what yeah. I think about, you know, like it's almost kind of very similar in like the Candyman way that it's, it's like this gothic fairy tale almost that happens to be about these like pain demons or angels that they say in the movie, you know, and the main character in the first one who is very much complicit in everything that's happening. Whereas in this one, she's offering up sacrifices by accident, whereas in the first one, she's doing this because she has this really weird sexual connection with this character that she's trying to bring back to life. And it's a lot of forced drama and conflict among very uninteresting and flat characters, and it just really did not work for me. I agree. This new Hellraiser, it's a fine horror movie on its own. It looks great. It feels all right. Jamie Clayton is a very good Hell Priest slash Pinhead. It's just not a Hellraiser. It's just just a random horror movie about a puzzle box. It's fine. I don't think I'm going to be talking about it at all next month, you know? Yeah, and this is where I kind of just often think, like, I understand the desire to attach your project and your movie to a already established name. It's easy brand recognition. It's easy for people to kind of get in and know what to expect. But going back to what I said originally, like, if this wasn't a Hellraiser film... I think they would have allowed themselves so much more freedom to, you know, subvert those expectations or give people something different. Because as it stands now, it's it really just feels pointless. And I just wonder when these studios and big companies are going to realize that rebooting, remaking is not quite the easy win that they all think it is because you're really pigeonholing yourself you're already creating so many expectations that are often impossible to meet. That leads me right back to my statement that I always make about these reboots, these requels. In 2009, they remade Friday the 13th, and that still remains to be out of all of these remakes, all the Halloween remakes, Hellraiser, Chucky, Leprechaun, whatever the fuck. That 2009 Friday the 13th still stands tall because it grasped the story of the original and it held on to it for a little bit and then it told its own story. It didn't keep rehashing shit that we've seen a thousand and one times and they even upgraded the fucking villain. Jason ran in that movie. He didn't just walk. He threw a fucking axe. He had bows and arrows. Like It wasn't just shit that we've seen a thousand times with Jason Voorhees. They gave us the background. He drowned. Mom went crazy. Whatever. And then they just gave us a completely brand new Friday the 13th that we hadn't seen yet. 
we can play it to almost any other horror movie that we've ever seen. We've never seen a story where Jason kidnaps somebody and essentially holds them hostage for however long Daniel Panabaker's character had been missing. There was a lot to that. It remains the best reboot of a horror franchise because of that. Like, we haven't seen that yet. It's all the same story, and if it's not the same story, it's some shitty subversion that would have worked better as its own movie instead of a reboot. Damn, Rascal, I never knew how much you loved the Friday the 13th remake. I thought I was alone in that. But you're, you are so right. That's exactly the path these horror remakes or reboots should take. I just remember when I was like 13 years old, I begged my cool aunt and uncle to like take me to see that movie. I was pretty scarred, but I also had a really good time. Yeah, I have a weird, like, fun story with that Friday 13th reboot. Like, that was a movie I watched at a sleepover at a friend's house when I was, like, what, 12 or 13? Like, that was one of those gateway, like, slasher movies for me where, like you said, it is just kind of this stripped-down, just mean movie when it wasn't actually, you know, trying to carve a niche for itself where, like you said, he kidnaps uh, Daniel Panabaker's character. And something that I was thinking about while I was watching Hellraiser is one thing that this Friday 13th reboot also gets really right is just the aesthetics because that movie just looks super gritty and grimy. And this new Hellraiser, one of my biggest problems is that David Bruckner, for whatever reason, he seems to have mixed up griminess with just darkness because so much of Hellraiser, it's defined by just how hard to see it is so many of the scenes just take place in the dark and it's not really doing anything like visually to spice things up it's just there because Bruckner just realized oh if I make it dark then it's gonna be scary and I don't think that's really like a guarantee and like Friday the 13th is a very good example of how to do that correctly we've kind of hit the nail on the head on on Hellraiser Rascal if you had a moment you want to talk about Halloween ends real quick I would very much like to say David Gordon Green, I need you to step into my office. We have to talk, brother. What in your right mind made you go with that verse, dog? Halloween 2018, that was amazing. I was very much looking forward to Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Last year, I go watch Halloween Kills. I don't think I've ever forgotten a movie that fast. That movie had me so disappointed that I didn't even think to go watch Halloween Ends at the movies. I watched it on Peacock. I understand plot twists. I'm all for plot twists. I'm all for going at things from a different angle. What I'm not all for is completely doing shit out of left field without setting it up properly. Again, good idea, bad pass. My brother James, he loved that movie. If I would have read his review before I watched the movie, I too probably would have loved it. That's how convincing his review of your movie was. Aw, oh, stop it. <laughs> I'm so serious. Thank you, man. I watched that movie, and again, I've never forgotten a movie so fast. I'm tired of this shit, man. I need y'all to go watch Friday the 13th from 2009. If you're going to make a remake, that is a remake. That is a reboot. That is a, a whatever the hell, requel, whatever we're going to call them from now on. That is how it's done. If you are going to reboot a franchise ever again, 
anybody. I don't give a fuck who you are. I don't care how much money you've made. I don't give a fuck how much clout you have. If it isn't going to be in the spirit. I'm not saying it's got to be just like either or. It's not going to be in the same spirit. Keep that shit, man. I don't want to see it. The rest of the gang is being quiet because we, uh, we have something a little special planned for Halloween ends. That'll be kind of something a little more unconventional than we've usually done. And hopefully that'll be ready by Halloween. But I'm glad we got to conclude with y'all hearing one of Rascal's classic rants. Um, I mean, you know, follow me on my Twitter account, RascalFKennedy1. Of course, you can always go to Full Circle Cinema and you can read literally anything that I've ever written that post-dates Super Bro movies. You can also find some of my stuff at ApolloU.com. Including his Halloween Ends review, which is fantastic, and you should go check it out. I'm going to more than likely be on Cineskeptics more than once. You know, anybody that listens to this pod, thank you for listening to my brothers. These guys are amazing. I love them. You should love them, too. It was an honor to have you here as our first guest, Rascal. You're, you always make it fun to be on a podcast and talk about movies. Anyone else have anything they want to plug today? Go watch Barbarian whenever it comes out on HBO Max or Hulu or whatever. Go see Terrifier 2 in theaters if you can. Super gory movie. Pretty crazy. Would love to talk about that more on the pod sometime. So more people see it, more people I can talk to about it. Mark, Mink, y'all got anything? We didn't cover this one movie earlier, but it's just something I just wanted to bring up for horror movies. X is certainly the best horror movie to come out in 2022 but if we're talking about the one that i had the most fun with it's orphan first kill a prequel that i honestly did not expect to like nearly as much as i did and even for like the first 30 40 minutes it was about as middling as i thought it was going to be but then the second half basically completely changed my thoughts on it and now i have no choice but to say it's a total blast so we've said this statement many times on the pod today, but it feels like the perfect note to go out on. Mark, you hit the nail right on the head. This has been Cineskeptics, where we believe in letting people like things, but also letting people not like things. My name is James Preston Poole. My name is Jacob. I'm Mark Skozen, a.k.a. Mank. I'm Mark Tan, a.k.a. Not Mank. Rascal F. Kennedy. You guys have a good night. Peace.